you have a Bible, we're in John chapter 2. It'll be up on the screen as well. Um, and if you um, have a bulletin, there should be an outline there. And there are printed messages, the full text of the message at both exits. You can grab those either now or later as you please. And uh, follow the message that way if you'd like. We're working our way through John. Now, next week uh, there's a little surprise in store for you. I will not be preaching next week. And uh, I don't know to tell you. If I tell you, you might not come, but... I want you to come. One of our goals as a church is to raise up young people to be leaders. And you, as you know, if you've ever had swim lessons, you can stand on the deck so long, and then you've got to get in the water, right? Next week, our high school group is going to lead the entire service. They will greet you. They will be ushering. They will be leading the worship. And uh, not preaching, but Tom Bogus, one of our high school sponsors, youth leaders, will be preaching. So next week we won't be in John, but then, uh, Lord willing, the week after we'll pick up with John chapter 3. Uh, so this morning, <clears throat> John chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. It seems to me that there is a plague, an epidemic of superficial or false faith in America, especially among those who profess to be evangelicals. Over the last few decades, I think going all the way back to Jimmy Carter when he was president, there have been polls taken to ask Americans, have you been born again? Somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of Americans answer affirmatively. Yes, I've been born again. Can you imagine how different our country would be morally if one-third or more of our people were truly born again and were following Christ? Now, God only knows the condition of people's hearts, but Jesus did give us a clue when he said, you can know the tree by the fruit. You see apples? It's a pretty safe conclusion. That's an apple tree. Uh, There's an orange tree, or whatever the tree may be. Well, you ought to be able to see a Christian and say, there's a Christian. That person, by their morals, by their lifestyle, stands out from the general American population. That person is a follower of Jesus Christ. As you know, in James, James said, genuine faith results in a life of good works. And The whole Bible says that. The epistle of 1 John says it in chapter 2, in verse 3. He says, by this, we know that we've come to know Him. How? Well, if we keep His commandments. Now, he doesn't mean that we would be sinlessly perfect, that Christians never sin. Of course, we all sin. 
But as he explains later in chapter 3 as well, a Christian's life should be a pattern, a trend, uh, a distinct, um, observable life of godliness, a life of obedience to Jesus Christ, not a life characterized by sin. Now, I bring all this up because in our text, we read about this rather curious situation where many believe in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't believe in them. I don't know any other text in the Bible that says that quite that way. They believed in Jesus, and the word translated entrusting in verse 24 is exactly the same word as the word believed in Greek in verse 23. And so you could easily translate it. Many believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Now, I looked high and low, and I found uh, two commentators out of more than a dozen that I read that uh, said they think this is genuine faith on these people's part. But I would agree with the overwhelming number of commentators who all say these people had superficial faith, and that's why... Jesus wasn't entrusting himself to them. Uh, Let me try and explain why I believe that. As we've seen, John's purpose for writing his gospel, John 20, verse 31, was so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Then John, to prove that or to bring us to that point, He opened his gospel in the first 18 verses right out of the chute, showing us the glory of Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Word of God. He is the eternal Creator who spoke the universe into existence. All things came into being through him. He is the one who sheds life, or light, I should say, and gives life. In chapter 1, verse 12, we read that as many as received him, To them, he gave the authority to be the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. In verse 14, John said that we beheld his glory, and he explains that glory as the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You get down to verse 50 of chapter 1, and you meet the first man who is said to believe. Now, probably before him, Andrew and Peter and uh, Philip believed, but Nathaniel, Jesus says, because you have believed, uh, have seen me, have you believed, and so on. Then in chapter 2, the disciples who have already believed, believe again. They saw Jesus' glory in turning the water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana, and we read that they saw when they saw that glory, they believed in him. And <clears throat> we discovered that Belief is not a one-time thing where you do it when you're a kid at camp in uh, grade school or something and it's done with. But belief grows as you see more and more and more of the glory of Jesus through the Word of God, through the testimony that is given to Christ there. And so last time we saw in chapter 2, in verse 22, that after Jesus' resurrection, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. And so what John is doing is he's drawing us this progressive, 
portrait of who Jesus is. That's really the theme of the Gospel of John. And John wants you to see the truth of who Jesus is as provided by eyewitness testimony that you might believe in him. And he's given us these examples of the growing faith of the disciples. And then we hit our text and we read in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in, excuse me, believed in his name observing his signs which he was doing. You would expect with what we've seen so far that John would leave the example there and move on. Another example of faith, right? Um, But he doesn't do that. We read in verse 24 and 25, but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And you have to ask the question, wait a minute, why would Jesus not entrust himself to these people who believed in him? I mean, isn't that John's purpose? For Jesus to get believers, followers? I agree with John Piper who explains it this way. What it says in essence is that Jesus knows what is in every heart, and so he can see when someone believes in a way that is not really believing. In other words, Jesus' ability to know every heart perfectly leads to the unsettling truth that some belief is not the kind of belief that obtains fellowship with Jesus and eternal life. Some belief is not saving faith. And so while I hope that everyone here this morning, if we went around and asked, would say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I hope that's true. We all need to ask the question, does Jesus believe in me? Has he entrusted himself to me? And I'll explain more what that means a little bit later here. But these verses are telling us that we need to believe in Jesus in such a way that he believes in us. Now, the verses are concluding the story of Jesus' first ministry trip to Jerusalem. It wasn't his first trip to Jerusalem. He had been there as a boy, probably many times. But his first ministry trip to Jerusalem, he cleansed out the temple and so on. But they also serve to introduce the story that we will encounter in chapter 3, where Jesus has this interview with Nicodemus. The reason we know that John is setting us up to introduce that story uh, is the language of our text. For example, in verse 25, two times John mentions man. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, now there was a man. So he is making a connection there. Also, In verse 23, we read that many believe the signs which Jesus was doing in Jerusalem during the feast. You get to chapter 3 and verse 2, and Nicodemus acknowledges the signs that Jesus was doing. Uh, We read that Jesus knew what was in every heart in chapter 2 here at the end. And you get into chapter 3, and it becomes very obvious that Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus' heart. 
that he was a good man, he was a religious leader, but Jesus could peer in and say, he needs to be born again. He didn't have new life. And so the story of Nicodemus will help us to understand our text, and vice versa, our text will help us to understand the story of Nicodemus. First thing we need to note then is that there is such a thing as superficial faith that does not result in salvation. I think the disciples, and I'm speculating here, but I would imagine they're enthusiastic young believers. They've just started following Jesus. They go up to Jerusalem, and all of these people are seeing the signs that Jesus is doing, and they're getting excited, and they're believing in Jesus. And then Jesus turns his back on them. Jesus doesn't believe in them. And I think the disciples must have been puzzled by thinking, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, then why doesn't he welcome all of these believers? I mean, isn't that the whole point? Uh, the reason Jesus didn't welcome them, John says, is they, he could see their hearts. He knew what was inside. And he knew that their faith was a superficial faith based on seeing the miracles he did. Apparently he did a number of miracles that John doesn't specify. He just um, refers to them in a lump package there. But these people were not repenting of their sins. They were not trusting in Jesus as their Savior from sin. We'll see a, a similar incident in uh, chapter 6. Um, Jesus had fed the 5,000 with the loaves and the two fish. And we read in chapter 6, verse 14, Therefore, when the people, <clears throat> excuse me, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, "This is truly the prophet who has come into the world." Well, that's a messianic term, and the disciples at that point, no doubt, thought, "Well, wonderful! I mean, these people finally get it. They're acknowledging Jesus as Messiah." But you know what Jesus did? The next verse says, "Perceiving that they were going to come and make him king by force." Jesus left them and went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So he didn't entrust himself to them either. Jesus knew, in other words, when people were superficially believing in him, and he did not entrust himself to those people. So let's look further then at superficial faith. First of all, note that superficial faith is based on the spectacular it's based on what Jesus can do to relieve your problem, to help you with your situation. It's not a faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. These believers in verse 23 of our text were impressed with Jesus. I mean, they had seen Jesus clutter the merchants out of the temple, and uh, he didn't get arrested. And they thought, wow, this guy's got some power. And they'd seen Jesus do these extra miracles that John mentions in verse 23. Maybe some of them had been healed. Maybe their friends or loved ones had been healed. And they thought, this guy's got the goods. This guy is powerful. So they were ready to sign on with Jesus. But what they didn't understand was who Jesus really was and what Jesus came to do. And so like Nicodemus, and I'm drawing on his experience here to explain these people, they probably thought, you know, we're good Jews. 
We're children of Abraham. I mean, we're children of the covenant. We, we're God's chosen. We keep the law of Moses. We've just been up here to the Passover. We're good enough. And they didn't understand their hearts as Jesus did. And that is to say, no, we're all sinners. And we need a Savior from sin. And they didn't know that Jesus was the Lord and that Jesus commands His followers to take up their cross and follow Him. So they were amazed at His signs, but they weren't committing themselves to Him as Savior and Lord, and He wasn't reciprocating, committing Himself to them. Now we see, in a, <clears throat> there's a lot of examples of superficial faith in the Bible, but maybe one of the most obvious is in Acts chapter 8. In the book of Acts, the message of the gospel has spread south to Samaria. Philip is down there preaching. He's seeing many, many people coming to faith. And uh, he's performing a number of signs and miracles. And there's a man named Simon the Magician. Simon was referred to as someone great. He himself did, apparently, some pretty stupendous miracles. And so Simon saw the miracles Philip was doing, and the text says specifically, he believed and was baptized. And so he begins to follow Philip around and marvel at all these miracles. Well, then the apostles, Peter and John, come down to um, impart the Holy Spirit, because in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit um, came to different people groups in accordance with Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and you can see that unfold throughout Acts. And so they lay hands on the people and they pray. Apparently, the text doesn't say, but apparently the people spoke in tongues as the sign of the Spirit, and Simon was really impressed. And so he gets out his wallet and he says to Peter, hey, how much do I have to give you guys to give that power to me? I'd, I'd like to be able to do what you're doing. And Peter reams him out. Here's Peter's words, Acts 8, 20 to 23. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. So clearly, Simon's faith was not saving faith. The second thing to note about superficial faith is uh, it may have a high view of Jesus, but it's not high enough. These people were impressed. I mean, they'd just seen Jesus cleanse the temple. They thought, well, this man's a great prophet. They'd seen him do miracles and thought, wow, the hand of God must be with him. Nicodemus says as much. He calls Jesus rabbi, which is a term of respect. He recognized Jesus was a teacher. Uh, he says, I know you've come from God. There was a problem, though. Nicodemus didn't understand that Jesus needed to impart the new birth. He didn't understand that Jesus had to be lifted up on the cross and raised from the dead. He didn't understand that Jesus was God in human flesh. And so his faith, at least initially, I think, Nicodemus's faith, was superficial. Now, I think later in John we can conclude he did come across the line. 
he did have genuine faith in Christ. But at this point, his view of Jesus was high, but it wasn't high enough. Uh, Same thing later in John chapter 10. There's some critics of Jesus, and they acknowledge you're doing a lot of good works. But they take up stones to stone Jesus for blasphemy because they said, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. You see, they had a high view of Jesus. He's a worker of good. But it wasn't high enough because they denied that he was God. The same thing is true, of course, in many of the religions and cults of the day. Islam. They have a high view of Jesus. He's a great prophet. You know, he, he is up there. Muhammad is a little higher. And they don't like the idea that Jesus is God. Same thing with the Jehovah's Witnesses. They say that Jesus is the greatest of all created beings. He was the first created. He's higher than anyone else. But they don't have a Savior because He had to be fully God and fully man to die for our sin. It's not a high enough view. Same thing with the Mormons. They have a high view of Jesus. They call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But their Jesus isn't the Jesus of the Bible, and he is not God. And so superficial faith often thinks highly of Jesus, just not highly enough. A third thing to note about superficial faith, and I've already alluded to it, is that it may be the beginning of genuine faith, but the test is whether it perseveres and bears fruit. Now, believing on the basis of signs or miracles is better than not believing. In fact, John wrote his whole book, as I said, to show us the signs so that we might believe. Um, In John chapter 10, Jesus tells his Jewish critics in verse 37 and 38, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Now, believing because of miracles will not result in salvation, however, unless it's accompanied by repentance. See, Simon the magician believed, but he hadn't repented because Peter says, you're still in the gall of bitterness and and of iniquity. Um, he, He still loved power. He wanted power over people. He wanted to wow them so they would all think Simon was great. Simon had not repented of his sins, and he wasn't saved. You have the parable of the sower. Some of the seed falls on rocky ground, springs right up, looks good. Sun comes out, beats on it, it dies. Jesus said that represents those who quickly embrace the truth, but when persecution or hardship comes, they wilt. They don't have roots. Or you have the thorny ground uh, seed that's sown and the thorns rise up and choke it out and it doesn't bear fruit. The only seed uh, soil represented there that is saved is that that bears fruit unto eternal life. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that there are some who believe in Jesus intellectually. They're scholars. They study the Bible. They think that Jesus is the one, but he says their hearts and their wills have never been broken, never been touched. Um, There are others, he says, they believe with their hearts. They 
had an emotional experience. They went forward. They cried. They, oh, Jesus is wonderful. But they never engaged their brain to see who Jesus is. And in many cases, they never turned from their sin and yielded their will to him. He says there's a third group. And they've yielded their will to him. They're out serving Jesus, trying to make the world a better place for him, uh, helping the poor, doing all these things. But again, they've never really studied who he is. And they've never been touched in their hearts. And Lloyd-Jones argues all three types have a superficial faith. Because they've only believed in the part of Jesus that they like. They've picked and chosen And they've only yielded the part of them that is natural for them to yield to him. But in every case, they have not seen themselves as lost sinners who need a Savior and Jesus as the only one who can save them. And so their faith is a partial faith. It's based, again, on what they like about Jesus. But when it doesn't go the way they want it to, then they fall away. Now, I'll be the first to say I probably came to Christ with a superficial faith. I told you several weeks ago, I was a teenager and I saw a couple that had a happy marriage and I thought, hey, if Jesus can give me a happy marriage, then it's worth following Jesus. That's really superficial. Well, thankfully, he didn't cast me off. He let me grow and understand, you know what? I'm a lost sinner and I need a savior for my sin. And Jesus is that only savior. And so my superficial faith, I think, grew into genuine saving faith. But... You have to see yourself for how the Bible portrays you as a sinner, even if you're a good religious sinner. And sinners need Savior, and there's only one Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. And so, saving faith, this is the second thing to note. There's such a thing as superficial faith, and we need to be really guarded against that. But saving faith begins with God by accepting His evaluation of our fallen hearts. I think the reason Jesus didn't entrust himself to these so-called believers is he knew what was in their hearts. The implication is, though, they didn't know what was in their own heart. And uh, this section, I think, serves to introduce us again to Nicodemus. And as I said, he's an example. He saw himself as a good Jew. Uh, He didn't know, I need to be born again. And we'll see. That's the first thing Jesus hits him with. And so goodness isn't enough to get us into the kingdom of God. We have to come, all of us, as sinners at the cross and believe in Jesus who died for our sin. Just two things here to point out. First of all, only God knows the human heart. Only God. In 1 Samuel, Samuel is told to go and anoint David as king, but he isn't told which one is the king yet. So he sees Jesse's sons, and he assumes the oldest one, boy, he's a handsome young guy. He must be the one. And he goes down the line. And then you have this great line, 1 Samuel 16, 7, where the Lord tells Samuel, For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Later, King Solomon will pray in 1 Kings 8, 39, For you alone, Lord, you alone know the hearts of all of the sons of men. And so when John tells us here, Jesus knew all men, and he knew what was in man, he is telling us Jesus is God. 
I mean, it's very, very plain. Jesus, only God, could know the hearts. And he knows our heart. And that's the scary part. The second thing to note is we need to ask the Lord to reveal to us his evaluation of our hearts. The reason we need that is Proverbs 21.2 says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. See, we all give ourselves the advantage, don't we? You know, those idiots drive too fast. That, that old granny, she drives too slow. Me? I drive just right. Always. It's always the other guy's fault, isn't it? And I'm always exonerating myself. That's just our human tendency. We don't know our hearts. Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, thankfully, when we get saved, yes, God gives us a new heart. We become a new creature in Him. But, as you know, if you're a believer, He doesn't take away the flesh or the old man or the bent toward sin that we all struggle with all of our days. And the problem is we don't realize just how deceptive and how dangerous this monster that lives within really is. I'm convinced that's why Peter denied the Lord. The Lord warned Peter, Peter, tonight you're going to deny me three times. No, not Peter. Hey, Lord, you got the wrong guy. These disciples, yeah, they may do it, but not old rock, man. I'm solid. He didn't know his own heart. Bam, he fell. It's interesting. When the Lord restores Peter there at the end of John, John 21, he gives, you know, three times, I think, to undo the three denials. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Third time, Peter's really getting exasperated. And he says this, John 21:17, Lord, you know all things. <laughs> you know that I love you. So the Lord knows our hearts better than we know our hearts, doesn't he? And we have to allow him to reveal to us the condition of our hearts. Now, thankfully, he doesn't back the dump truck up and do it all at once. We would be crushed under the load. He is gracious, and he reveals it to us gradually. And you know how he does it? Through the Word. You're reading the Word, and you come across a verse. You, you've read it maybe a zillion times before, and suddenly the Holy Spirit just brings it right between the eyes, and you go, oh, wow, it is I. <laughs> that's, that's who I am right there, God. You've just shown me more of my heart. And that's how you grow in grace, as you live openly before the Lord. You see more and more how weak, how prone to sin you are. And that means you lean and you cry out to God all the more, Oh God, be my strength and my weakness. And you lean on Him more and more. And that's how you grow. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never done so, may I say, you've got to begin by crying out to God to give you a new heart through the new birth. If you've never been born again, you start with God there. Because the human heart, the, the fallen human heart, without the new birth, can't ever please God. And Christianity 
is primarily a matter of the heart. It's not coming to church, although I hope you do so. And it's not even reading your Bible, although I hope you do so. Christianity is a matter of how is your heart before God who knows all things. And you do business with God daily on the heart level. And so each day you have to come clean with God. I imagine there are some of you here and you do know Jesus, but you're hiding some sin. Maybe you're hiding it from your mate. And maybe you're hiding it from the best friend you have. But you know what? You're not hiding it from God. Because God knows every single thought you have. And you won't make any progress with God as long as you play games of trying to hide your sin from Him. You, you walk with God by exposing your heart, the thoughts of your heart, to the Lord. And saying, oh God, cleanse me of my wicked thoughts. God, help me to think pure thoughts of You. And you walk with the Lord exposed to the light of His Word. So we all need to be really careful because there's this thing called superficial faith in the Bible and it doesn't result in salvation. Saving faith begins when you accept God's evaluation of your heart on the heart level. And then thirdly, saving faith means having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ Trusting Him as the one who saves you from your sins. Now, you need to make a decision to believe in Christ, but a lot of people think that the decision is automatic. You made a decision, you're saved. Well, it's not an indicator of the new birth unless you're coming to God with repentance and faith and you're asking Him to have your sins forgiven through His sacrifice on the cross. In other words, if you're coming to Jesus for a superficial reason... Life isn't going too well, and I've heard you'll make it go well. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is repentant faith, where you recognize, I am a sinner. God, I don't want to live that way. God, I believe in Jesus as the sacrifice for my sins. Uh, one of the commentators I read this week, RVG Tasker, put it this way. Christ regarded all belief in him as superficial which does not have as its most essential elements the consciousness of the need for forgiveness and the conviction that he alone is the mediator of that forgiveness. So that brings me to answer, I hope, the question, well then, what does it mean for Jesus to believe in you? What does it mean for him to entrust himself to you? And I think it has to do with this. It means that you enter into a personal relationship with Jesus. Because trust is at the heart of our personal relationships, isn't it? You don't open your heart up to somebody you don't trust. If you meet a guy you don't trust, you kind of keep him out there at arm's length and one hand on your wallet, and you say, you know, I'd like to put as much distance between myself and that guy as possible because I just plain don't trust him. And so trust is at the heart of human relationships. And for Jesus to entrust himself to you, he has to trust you. Now you're saying, well, wait a minute. How can he trust me when I'm prone to sin? You know, I don't even trust myself. Well, I think the answer to that is, first of all, there has to be, as I said, the new birth. 
We'll look more at that in chapter 3. God has to give you a new heart that longs for Him, that loves righteousness, that wants to be like Jesus. And then, once He gives you that new heart, um, and I think He didn't entrust Himself to these people because He could see that their faith was not the result of the new birth. But once you then are born again, you have to walk in obedience to Him for Him to trust you, to entrust Himself to you. Uh, in John 14:21, Jesus says that. It says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me, hear this verse now, he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Some of you are thinking, wait a minute, I thought God's love was unconditional. Well, in one sense it is. In another sense it isn't. For him to be close to you, there has to be obedience. And the verse then concludes, my Father will love him and we will come to him and make, or excuse me, I'm jumping down. He says, he will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Jesus says there, just the stuff of human relationships. You don't disclose yourself to someone you don't trust. When somebody is trustworthy, you open up more. You share more. That's what Jesus is saying. When I see your obedience, I'll know you're trustworthy. I'll disclose myself more. And then verse 23, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. I think he means more than the indwelling presence of God that we have when we are born again. I think he's talking about Jesus and the Father being at home with us. They're going to move in and unpack and kind of make themselves at home in our hearts when we walk obediently with him. And so it's only those who have been born again who are able to obey God from the heart because he gives us a new heart. And so there's the new birth and then there's the beginning and Continuing and more and more a walk in obedience. And Jesus entrusts himself then to that person. Some of the scariest verses in the New Testament for me are Jesus' almost concluding words in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, he says this, and these words just haunt me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. There's the obedience factor. Many, not a few, many, will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. They claim to know him. He's just saying, it wasn't reciprocal. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So you got people here who say, Lord, Lord, they name the name of Jesus. In fact, you got people who are doing a more impressive ministry than I'm doing because they were casting out demons and they were, they were prophesying and they were um, doing miracles. But their disobedience showed 
They believed in Jesus with their mouth. Jesus didn't believe in them because he saw their disobedient deeds. And when they get to heaven, it's going to be Jesus' evaluation of us, not ours of him, that really makes the difference. Will he say, I knew you. I knew you. Yeah, come on in. Or will he say, nope, I didn't know you. So my aim in this message, I hope, is the same as John's aim, and that is to get us all to believe in Jesus in such a way that Jesus believes in us. Or to use Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 13:5, he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? I read about some people who were touring a mint where they make coins. There was a big vat of molten metal there that they would be pouring into the molds to make the coins. And the tour guide explained that you could run your hand under water and then hold it out and he could pour the molten metal over your hand and it wouldn't cause any pain or any damage to your hand. And uh, he turned to a couple that was there and said, uh, Sir, would you like to try it? And the guy said, No thanks, I'll take your word for it. But the wife had a different spirit. She said, Sure, I'll give it a try. And so putting her words into action there, she stuck her hand in a bucket of water, held it out, Tour guide poured the molten metal over her hand, didn't damage her hand, as he said. And then he turned to the husband and he said, Sir, you claimed to believe what I said, but your wife truly trusted. See the difference? It's easy to profess, oh, I believe in Jesus. True faith puts it into obedience, into action. And you don't want to stand before the Lord. Believe me, trust me, you don't want to stand before the Lord someday and hear Him say, you know, your faith was superficial. Yeah, you trusted me, but I didn't entrust myself to you. Genuine saving faith means that you enter into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ by trusting Him as your Savior by repenting of your sin, by walking in obedience then to Him as a result of the new birth, so that one day you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. Dear Father, you know every heart here. I sure don't. I don't even know my own heart. But dear Lord, help us all to genuinely believe in you, to trust you with everything as Savior and Lord. And Lord, give us the grace and the strength through the new birth to live a life of obedience, and when we stumble to get up and keep walking on the path of obedience. Help us, Lord, to live openly before you, not to play games and hide our sin thinking that we're getting away with it but just to expose our sin to you and seek you for grace and strength. Lord, if there's anyone here today, either with no faith, they've never believed, 
or with superficial faith. They've professed to believe, but they aren't born again. I would ask in your grace that you would break through and give them genuine faith. Give them the new birth. And we ask it all for your glory in Jesus' name.